Section eight of Piccadilly, a fragment of contemporary biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Piccadilly, a fragment of contemporary biography by Lawrence Oliphant. Part five The Flesh. Part one Piccadilly, June somebody ought to compile a handbook for debutantes and debutantes setting forth the most approved modes of procuring invitations to balls and parties during the london season not only would it be a very invaluable guide now but it would be interesting for posterity to refer to as illustrating the manners and customs of their ancestors and accounting for the hereditary taint of snobbism which is probably destined to characterize in an eminent degree the population of the british isles en angleterre said a cynical dutch diplomatist numero deux va chez numero un pour son glorifier auprès de numero trois had he gone to the bodwinkle ball he would have remarked a curious inversion of his aphorism for there it was numero un who went down to numero deux but i must leave it to vandenbosch that i think was his name to discover what there was to boast about to number three he was evidently a profound philosopher but i doubt his getting to the bottom of this great social problem to do so he would have to look at it free from all petty prejudice recognizing its sublime as well as its ridiculous features why did duchesses struggle to be asked to bodwinkles i almost think a new phase of snobbism is cropping out and the rivalry will be to try not who can rise highest but who can sink lowest in the social scale the fashionable world is so blasé of itself that it has positively become tired of worshipping wealth unless its owners possess the charm of extreme vulgarity its taste has become so vitiated by being unnaturally excited and pandered to that we shall have to invent some new object of ambition why for instance should not a select clique of oxford street shopkeepers give a series of parties which might become the rage for one season they have only to get two or three leaders of tone to patronize them at first and be very exclusive and select in their invitations afterwards to ensure success a year or two ago the thing to do was cream on why not have an oxford street year the bodwinkle tendency will result at last in its being the great ambition of a man's life to get his daughters asked to a little music and a few friends at his bootmakers in paris which is becoming rapidly impregnated with this spirit that city being in a very receptive condition for everything bad from all parts of the world in paris i say they have made a very good start as any of my fair friends who have patronized mr worth's afternoon tea-parties in the rue de la paix will readily acknowledge they will bear testimony to the good taste of the milliner and i to the bad taste of his customers that vain women in the highest circles of parisian fashion can in an eager rivalry to display as much of their backs as possible 
endeavor to obtain the especial patronage of a man dressmaker by accepting his invitations to tea should be a warning to you o oh gentle english dames of what you may come to why sacrifice self-respect and propriety to shoulder-straps why insist upon it that there is only one man in the world who knows how to cut out a dress behind supposing he can bring it an inch lower down than anybody else if you give that inch beware of the l why oh why advertise your clothes in the newspapers is it not enough to puff your dinner-parties in the public journals at so much a notice without paying fifteen shillings apiece to your dressmaker to put your names into the morning post coupled with your wearing apparel every time you go to court if you persist in the practice let me recommend you as a measure of economy to put in your own advertisements the press charge is ten shillings six pennies the dressmaker pockets the other four shillings six penny or else be generous why keep the whole advertisement to yourself let the poor dressmaker put her name in as having furnished the raiment and she will perhaps let you off the four shillings six penny otherwise you may do it still cheaper by bills on boardings immense attraction the marchioness of scilly will appear at court on the blank instant train glace poult de soie bouillonnet etc and so on i am not sure that to attend the professional social gatherings of a parisian undressmaker and pay him twenty francs a look is not less objectionable but this is the british way of worshipping the same idol this vein of reflection was suggested to me by bodwinkle's ball talk of sermons in stones they are nothing to the sermons contained in drums and balls first i have already let my readers into the secret history of that ball i have told them how lady broadham and spiffy goldtip combined their resources and launched the bodwinkles in vanity fair with a gorgeous mansion and lady mundane's invitation list to describe all spiffy's exertions in the bodwinkle cause for some days prior to the ball would be impossible to tell of the extraordinary suggestions that bodwinkle was continually making with reference to the decoration of the banisters the arrangements for supper and the utter ignorance he displayed throughout of the nature of the enterprise upon which he had embarked would occupy more space than i can afford to give a list of the guests would be superfluous as they were very accurately reported in the columns of the morning post in spite of all spiffy could do bodwinkle would insist upon inviting a number of his own friends and nearly ruined the party irretrievably by allowing one man to bring his daughters however as mrs b did not take the slightest notice of them and as they knew nobody they went away early nevertheless as lady verifast said there were all kinds of people that one had never seen in one's life before this was the great mistake people don't yet humiliate themselves to get invitations to meet people they never saw before they may come to that but at present nothing is worth going to unless all society wants to go then anything is now spiffy had so managed that by a judicious system of puffing he had excited immense interest in the bodwinkle ball 
he had been morally bill-sticking it in all the clubs for weeks past. He had told the most répandu young dancing men that it would be impossible for him to get them invitations. If Bodwinkle had been General Tom Thumb and Spiffy had been Barnum, he would not have achieved a greater success. He had insisted upon Bodwinkle having Mrs. B., painted by the most fashionable artist, and exhibited in the academy, where the hanging committee, some of whom were at the ball afterwards, gave it a good place, and the Times critic gave it half a column. Until then he had kept her dark. No one had ever seen Mrs. Bodwinkle, except three or four literary men, who discreetly and mysteriously alluded to her intellect, and a naughty duke, who indiscreetly and less mysteriously alluded to her charms. People began to want to make Mrs. Bodwinkle's acquaintance some time before the ball, but she resolutely denied herself. The only men who were let into the secret were Bower, Scraper, and a few others skilled in the art of socially advertising. Their principal function consisted in asking every one of their friends for some time before whether they were going to the Bodwinkle ball. It oozed out, through Spiffy, that I knew something of Bodwinkle, and the result was that I was bombarded with requests to procure invitations. This was the style of note that arrived incessantly. This is from Mary, Marchioness of Pimlico. Dear Lord Frank, Lady Mundane tells me that you are one of the privileged few who can get invitations to the Bodwinkles. Please exert your interest in my favour. You know this is Alice's first season. Yours truly, Mary Pimlico. Here is another one. Dear Lord Frank, do please get an invitation for my very great friend, Amy Rumsort, for the Bodwinkles. She is most anxious to go, for very particular reasons. I will tell you them when we meet. Spiffy Goldtip sent Mamma mine, but declines to come to the front about Amy. Yours most sincerely, Harriet Wilde. Wild Harry is the name by which this young lady is usually known among her sporting friends. She is a promising debutante, and very properly calls herself first favourite of the season. Dear me, thought I, as I opened the series of similar epistles, if I were the head of a public department who only recommended honours to be given to those who applied for them oftenest, and if all these were meritorious public servants wanting C.B.s, or gallant officers anxious for Victoria Crosses, they could not beg more pertinaciously and unblushingly. And I made a list of the petitioners, leaving out those who had written to me without knowing me, and went to the club, where I entrusted them to Spiffy, with a peremptory request that he would distribute the required invitations upon pain of my financial displeasure. Spiffy gave me some curious statistics about invitations and the means employed to obtain them. Three ladies who never asked him to their parties, and whom he had therefore left out, though all more or less leaders of the Beaumonde, actually wrote to Mrs. Bodwinkle in various strains. One was a threatening, the other an appealing letter, and the third assumed that she had been omitted by mistake. Two young gentlemen had the impertinence, after trying every other mode in vain, actually to call on Mrs. Bodwinkle and extract invitations from that bewildered woman, who was too much frightened to refuse them. 
Bodwinkle was not idle in the house, and two liberals and an extreme radical, all young, unable to resist temptation, voted against the government on the promise of invitations. As for Spiffy, even he was acquiring fresh social experience, and tells me he can scarcely resist entering upon a pecuniary exploitation of his position in society. There is, said that enterprising and original individual, so much to be done by a man of genius. Just look what is open to me in this line. Families in the country, anxious that their sons should be well lancés in the society of the metropolis, are requested to apply to the Honourable Spiffington Goldtip, invitations to the most fashionable parties obtained at a reasonable amount, charges moderate for introductions to clubs, no charge whatever for introductions to noblemen. Or, in this line, to debutantes and others in want of chaperonage, young ladies whose mothers are invalids or are from some cause considered objectionable by society or who have only stepmothers or who are orphans with unkind or evangelical relations or who are unexpectedly at the last moment deprived of their natural protectors on applying to the undersigned will be provided with suitable chaperones the undersigned begs to notify that his stock of chaperones will bear the strictest examination as to character and have all at one time or other moved in the highest circles of society no debutante or young lady whose birth and antecedents do not entitle her to the same privilege need apply speffington goldtip then the pendant to this would be to married women or widows without daughters married women or widows without daughters who have either dropped out of society or are in danger of dropping out in consequence of there being no special reason why they should be kept in and who are capable of undertaking the duties of chaperone are requested to apply to the honourable spiffington goldtip the honourable s g has a large stock of debutantes and other young ladies in want of chaperones always on hand the strictest references given and required you may laugh spiffy went on but i assure you the sort of success i have in my own line are quite astonishing look what a hit i've made with wild harry her mother lady wilde you remember was her husband's brother's governess well i said plainly to her you will ruin that girl's chances if you attempt to force her on society in your own way you can't afford to entertain upon the right scale and you won't be asked anywhere unless you do for there is a set going to be made against harriet if you will leave her to me i know her strong points and will see her through the whole business as if she was my own sister i must here remark en passant that spiffy is apparently capable of doing the most unselfish things and of taking an infinity of trouble upon himself out of pure good nature what was your modus operandi i asked oh it was all plain sailing enough the first thing to provide was a popular chaperone and the second a special reputation now harry is a wonderful rider and knows a horse thoroughly then she looks like a high-bred arab herself though her mother was a governess and i felt sure dick helter would fall a victim 
so I introduced her to the Helters. As Lady Jane goes in for safeness, she does not like married women, and always smiles most kindly upon any girl that pleases her husband. So I knew if I could get Harry by her side on the top of Helter's drag, the next step was a certainty, and that I had secured my chaperone. The result has fully justified my expectations. Harry has secured the box-seat en permanence, went down to the derby on Helter's drag, and won a pot on the French horse under his judicious advice. Little Haltort and all the other men who lost to her adore her, of course, and all the girls in London hate her. But whenever the mammas object to asking her on account of that horrid Lady Wilde, I floor all opposition by saying, Oh, Lady Jane Helter will bring her. I wonder, said Spiffy with a sigh, when she has made her little game, whether she will remember to whom she owed it. Now, do you find such ingratitude of this kind? I asked inquiringly. No, said Spiffy, I must say, on the whole, my experience of the world in this respect is that it is not so black as it is painted. It is true that I attribute its gratitude chiefly to laziness. For instance, in my own case, so long as I hold the position I do in society, people who insisted upon being ungrateful to me would find it hard work. By the way, I observe you don't go out as much as you used to. How's that? This was no business of Spiff's, so I said sublimely, because the aristocracy bore me, and the middle classes grate upon my nerves. But about this little girl, she is rather an ally of mine, so you must see that her friend Miss Rumsort has the card. It is too bad, broke out Spiffy, the way that girl and her married sister are trying to take the world by storm is intolerable. It does not matter whether they know the people they apply to or not. It is always the same story. She pretends she is tremendously in love with Larkington because he goes everywhere, and her sister looks sentimental and tries to work upon your feeling about poor Amy, whose only object in life is to meet him. But it is all a dodge to get asked. She cares no more for Larkington than for me. Now, I'll be bound, Wild Harry puts something about very particular reasons in her note to you. Well, said I, astonished at Spiffy's penetration and at the new views of life he was placing before me, I must admit that that phrase did occur. Of course it did. Why, it is one of the regular forms of extorting invitations under false pretenses. I want the police to interfere, but it seems, although they are doubtless begging letters, containing fraudulent misrepresentations, there is some difficulty about bringing them within the terms of the act. Never mind. Live and let live. Send her the invitation. It seems to me, my dear Spiffy, that you and the Bodwinkles and Miss Rumsort are all in the same line of life, so you should not be too hard upon her. As a matter of policy, social adventurers should do what they can for each other. Spiffy's face flushed, for if he had lost the conscience, he had retained the consciousness of a gentleman, and he felt the reproach. 
Just at this moment Mr Wog, who had been elected an honorary member of the Piccadilly, and was standing unconsciously to us, listening to our conversation, struck in and averted the retort which was rising to Spiffy's lips. I guess, he said, turning to Spiffy, for whose talents he evidently entertained a high admiration, that I could give you a few hints, from my own experiences in New York, that might help you in your line of business. My own, sir, in that city, was quite similar to yours in this. You operate at night in Mayfair, and by day on change. Well, sir, I had two spheres of operation. One was on Wall Street, and the other on Fifth Avenue. In fact, I may say that Wall Street is the broad and flowery road that leads to Fifth Avenue. The trouble with operators in this country is they don't understand how to do things on a large scale. Now the first thing I did when I went to do business in New York was to keep a judge. To keep a judge? said Spiffy with amazement. Why, yes, how can you operate freely if you are afraid of the law? Besides his regular monthly allowance, my judge gets a percentage on every one of my financial enterprises, which are fraudulent according to the letter of the statute. Then it costs me a good deal to manage to get all my lawsuits tried in his court. Besides, I have to keep a number of members of both the houses of the legislature in Albany regularly retained, and to put a big pile on one side for lobby operations in Washington to say nothing about keeping the pockets of police and custom-house officers and other small fry well lined, the press alone swallows up the fifth of all I make. How do you suppose I could ever have accomplished my celebrated combination by which I got four large railroads under my control and sold a secret issue of twenty millions of stock for fifteen millions without ever paying one dime of it to any of the companies if i had not stopped the mouths of the lawyers politicians and newspapers with greenbacks why sir i have ruined more whole families in one day by one of my financial operations than any other man in the united states has in a month and by the extraordinary novelty grandeur variety and success of my undertakings i have won the admiration envy and respect of the majority of my countrymen spiffy seemed deeply impressed by the superior force and originality of conception displayed by mr wog no indication of these qualities appearing on his calm exterior of what nature are your operations in fifth avenue he asked oh purely social mr wog replied you see the aristocracy of new york require to be approached in a very special way you can enter into the ranks of the upper ten either by becoming a pillar of a fashionable church or by driving the fastest trotters and handsomest foreign-hand teams in central park or by the help of mr pink by the help of mr pink said i interrogatively yes he corresponds to our friend spiffy here he is the sexton of st grace's the most fashionable church in new york and when you have made your pile and want to start in fashionable life and don't know who to invite he makes out your list and puts the invitations to your first ball in the prayer books of the congregation 
It imparts a sort of odor of sanctity to our entertainments, which is exceedingly gratifying to our most refined circles." "I suppose," said I, "now that your social and financial positions are secured, you will run for Congress?" "Sir," said Mr Wog, sternly, "when I explained to you the nature of my commercial success, it was to convey to you the idea of my smartness, not of my meanness. I am not aware of having said anything to lead you to suppose that I could so far degrade myself as to become a politician." "'What a comfort it will be,' I remarked, when the rotten old despotisms of Europe and the political ambitions that belong to them shall have crumbled to the dust, and when we have instead the free and glorious institutions of the West, which seem to offer nothing to tempt a man from the ennobling pursuit of hard cash. But Mr. Wogg failed to appreciate the force of my remark, as he was intently endeavouring to catch the purport of a very private conversation carried on by a group a few yards off, towards which he gradually edged, in the hope that he might be able either to acquire or impart some interesting information. Spiffy looked more humbled and crestfallen than I had ever seen him, but remembering that he had still a score unsettled in consequence of the remark which Mr. Wogg's arrival had interrupted, he said maliciously, "'By the way, what is the real state of the case about you and Lady Ursula? I don't apologize for asking, as I am sure you must want the right version to be known, both for your sake and hers. The right version is simply that I neither am at this moment, nor ever have been, engaged to Lady Ursula. Then why did you tell Helter you were, and why are you pulling the family through their difficulties? Because Helter was provoking me almost as much as you are, though I admit that is no reason why I should not have told the truth. As for the motives which actuate me in meddling in those pecuniary transactions in which you and Lady Broadham are implicated, I am afraid you would not understand them if I were to attempt to explain them. It is a complicated business altogether. We shall get through it most satisfactorily by each minding our own share of it, I said significantly, and I walked off to a table where Broadham was writing letters. I had not seen him since my interview with his sister. He looked gloomy and discontented, and gave me a cold glance of recognition. How are you, Broadham? I suppose Lady Ursula told you the result of our conversation, I said in a low tone, and took a chair by his side. He nodded sulkily, and showed a disposition to cut me. My last few words with Spiffy had not left me in a mood to be cut unresistingly, so I said sharply, "'Well, I hope both you and Lady Broadham will contradict the perfectly unfounded report you were the means of spreading. I need not say that I shall do my share, and I trust that you will profit by the lesson you have received not to interfere in matters of this sort again.' "'I tell you what it is, Frank,' said Broadham, who felt that somehow I was more to blame than he was, but who was taken aback by my turning the tables upon him so suddenly. "'If it was not that dueling is exploded, and that it would be against my principles at any rate, I would shoot you.' 
"'By way of helping to clear your property of its encumbrances,' I added. "'Your mother has put everything into my hands, and I can do pretty much what I please with the whole family.' "'Can you?' said Broadham, with a grim smile. "'The only thing that consoles me in the whole affair is that you will find that you have got a little score to settle with my mother. If you knew her as well as I do, you would not anticipate the interview with pleasure. As for Ursula, I suppose she knows her own business best, but I don't envy her the life she is likely to lead either. The alarming interview you threaten me with gives me no uneasiness, I said, but perhaps it may be as well that you should let Lady Broadham know that the fact of my not being engaged to her daughter will not interfere with the arrangements I am making to put the money affairs of the family right. Why, you can't mean that! said Broadham, thunderstruck at this unexpected announcement, and he looked at me with a glance of affectionate interest. You must be mad. Did your sister tell you so? I asked. Once she did make a mysterious speech, and I really think she meant to imply something of the sort. However, of course, I am only joking. I need not say I hope, under the circumstances, it will be long before you recover your sanity. "'Are you going to the Bodwinkles to-morrow?' said I, doing a little of Bower and Scraper's work. "'Good gracious, no! I am bored to death with having to answer the question. The trouble my mother has taken to get those people invitations is something amazing. She even wanted me to go, though she does not approve of balls, and never let me learn to dance. "'Let me introduce you to Miss Gary. You are not too old to begin.' "'No!' said Broadham. I have started on the other tack, and people would say it was inconsistent. Besides, none of the young thinking men of the day dance, even though they may not be religious. I don't suppose that there is a single man in the century dances. This observation struck me as so preposterous that I could only account for it by supposing that, for the first time in his life, Broadham had condescended to chaff. Not a man in the ideal sense, I dare say, but the boys are not more backward in this century than in any formal one. Boys, said Broadham indignantly, there are no boys in the century. The century is a club that meets twice a week. I don't go on Sunday nights myself, but some Thursday night I will take you. And Broadham plunged back into the correspondence in which I had interrupted him, while I strolled home down Piccadilly, moralizing on the century. End of section eight.